So in uh, moments, we're going to be joined by our second guest today, City Council Member Donovan Richards. He uh, chairs the City Council's Public Safety Committee, which has NYPD oversight. And we're going to talk with him about related issues and then get into some other stuff on affordable housing and perhaps Queens politics. He represents a district in Southeast Queens. There is no shortage of interesting Queens political storylines, most pressingly the recount that's ongoing in the Queens district attorney primary, which we've discussed now for a couple of weeks on this show uh, intermittently. And we're hoping to find out results there soon. So welcome Councilmember Richards to the show momentarily. But I just wanted to ask you, Jarrett, before we get to Councilmember Richards, um, there's been so much in the in the news, and we'll ask him this, but so much in the news, obviously, around the trial of NYPD officer Daniel Pantaleo and the mayor's response, lack thereof, letting due process play out, et cetera, saying, you know, really that his hands are basically tied. They first had to defer to the Staten Island district attorney and then the federal Department of Justice uh, and then finally moved ahead with the NYPD trial. Are you sympathetic to his argument there? Do you agree with those who have said he should have acted quicker? I mean, I tend to agree that at some point he should have sort of delivered an ultimatum to the DOJ saying, listen, if we don't hear from you by X date, we're moving ahead with our administrative trial. I I think so. And I think his reaction to the DOJ's announcement of the recent weeks that that would be city policy going forward is a tacit admission of that. Uh, You know, I am sympathetic to the fact that there is, you know, there is a a due process. There is a civil service procedure and that that should be respected. That protects a lot of workers. It's frustrating in many cases. It's been frustrating in this one. But be that as it may, we're coming to a point where Bill de Blasio will be out of uh, excuses, if that's what it's been, or at least other options and the decision will come down to him and I think that will be you know for better or worse a defining moment of his merelty um, and and of his sort of political profile what what he decides to do there it's it's not an easy decision for him especially uh, given he has a city to run and a pres- at least at the moment a presidential campaign to conduct but um, we're, we're rap- rapidly approaching the point where that has to occur yeah I mean as far as I can tell from his comments over many months you know he's sort of tried to give some winks and nods to people to be more patient because this is going to be resolved. And it almost seems like, you know, he's sort of indicating, yes, don't worry, when this is all said and done, Officer Pantaleo will be removed from the force. Maybe I'm reading too much into it because he hasn't said as much, but he's promising a resolution in August. We're waiting for the NYPD administrative judge to put a recommendation to Police Commissioner O'Neill, although Officer Pantaleo then gets to respond to that recommendation. I don't know. The mayor's promise of August feels a little premature to me, but we'll see how that shakes out. Um, But we're waiting to have the judge present those findings to and recommendations to Commissioner O'Neill. Then O'Neill acts. Uh, and then we we see what happens if there's some sort of lawsuit or something, you know, uh, filed. And that's part of what I think the mayor is trying to protect against is him, po- you know, quote unquote, poisoning the public dialogue and then, you know, setting the city up for litigation if they do try to remove Officer Pantaleo from the force. So let's get City Council Member Donovan Richards on the line and ask him about uh, this and a lot more. Council Member Richards, welcome to WBAI. Hey, good evening. How are you guys doing? Doing well, thank doing you. Well. How are you doing? Being on. Great, awesome. It's been a very emotional day. I was at a former president of 32 BJ's funeral today. Um, Hector Figueroa, who we unfortunately lost, uh, a stark, big leader in the, in the uh, union movement across the city and country, and a 
real loss to our city. So it's been Let's an emotional start. roller coaster today. But glad to see Kyle Bragg step up, uh, who's a native of Southeast Queens and uh, who lives in my district, who will be the new president of 32BJ. Since you've you've mentioned that, let's start there, Councilmember. And one of the questions, obviously, is that this is a, a you know personal tragedy for uh, for Mr. Figueroa's family, his friends, certainly his allies in the union. What do you think is the significance in terms of policy, in terms of politics, of union power in the city, of an untimely? death like this? Because it is, a, it is a major event, and the question obviously is, what impact will it have on the discussion about workers' rights in New York City? I think you're going to see uh, Hector's work continue. Um, I mean, this was a gentleman who was a consensus builder, someone who was respected, but who really provided us all a blueprint on how to move um, the union movement forward. Uh, you, we look back at the fight for 15, you know, at our airports, right, and organizing around, um, you know, our fast food workers, uh, taxi drivers now, you know, these are all things he had his toe dipped into, and I, I'm not, I don't feel like we're going to see a slowdown and where this movement is going to continue to go, because he certainly built out a framework, and I have the utmost confidence um, in Kyle Bragg, who worked side by side with him since 1999 right. um, at BJ, who I certainly had the pleasure of working with. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have a ULERP in my district now, and we've already worked very closely to ensure that we'll have building service workers on that project, um, even before we, you know, approve the project at uh, the city council in a few months. So I feel like the work um, is going to continue, and we just have to build on the foundation that Hector laid out for us. Yeah, you got at a very interesting point uh, about Hector Figueroa's leadership of 32BJ, which is that he, you know, saw it as part of his philosophy and the and the larger union movement to help organize workers that weren't necessarily going to be members of 32BJ, but he was very active and very involved in labor organizing that was outside his direct union. And that was a, a very interesting choice that not necessarily every leader of a, of a specific union uh, would take on. So that'll be interesting to see where 32BJ goes uh, on that front and the, you know, the larger sort of strategy around organizing that the, the union takes uh, moving forward. Uh, so let's let's get back to NYPD oversight, which your city council committee uh, does, and you've been outspoken on a lot of issues related to policing. Uh, before we get back to where things stand with the trial of Officer Daniel Pantaleo in the death of Eric Garner, I wanted to ask you first about um, sort of some of the uproar around the mayor's comments about uh, having, quote unquote, the talk with his son, Dante, who obviously uh, who has a black mother, Shirley McRae, uh, and has written and talked about, you know, growing up as a, a young black man in New York City. The mayor's gotten a lot of criticism for bringing that back up on the presidential debate stage. What's what's your stance on that conversation and, and how um, sometimes NYPD union leadership uh, reacts to that and sort of the public discourse around discussing having that conversation? Um, I think it's a real conversation. And for black and brown communities, you know, I remember my father having this talk with me very young. Um, you know, there were times my father and I, I remember one day um, we were hanging outside, sitting on the stoop. It was one of those hot summer days and detectives literally pull up to our house and ask us, what are we doing there? 
<laughs> so there are, are so many of these situations that arise every day um, for black and brown communities that this is a common conversation on how to interact, um, how to live after an interaction. Um, and, I, you know, I, for the union leadership, and it's very unfortunate, it's something I pointed today out. Today I think I spoke to the New York Times, and I was speaking of how the lack of diversity <laughs> in union leadership certainly stymies them from understanding the black and brown experience. So I think the unions have an obligation to make sure that they're diversifying their ranks and having people who are reflective of these communities in their ranks so that they can get two sides of the story instead of this narrow perception of, well, these are black and brown communities who just make this up. Uh, I like to remind people Sean Bell was my neighbor um, after he was killed. You know, I and a close friend of mine who passed away through his daughter, you know, one of her first birthday parties. Um, so this is personal to us. You know, these are things we go through. And I think the mayor's correct to talk about this. We have to talk about it more. We have to um, share our experiences because that's important in healing the divide that we see between um, the police department and communities. You know, the only way to get at the root cause of an issue is to acknowledge that an issue actually exists. And I think the mayor's right to do that. An interesting point about the union leadership because the police department itself is growing somewhat more diverse. It's quite quite visible when you see officers on the street. It does not look like the police department of 20 or 30 years ago. And it's on, it's the police department, you know, I go to the police graduations, I was at one a few weeks ago, and, you know, you can see that the NYPD is actually making true strides to ensure that the department is more diverse. And we still have a long way to go because of a lot of the policies, um, you know, things like the Eric Garner death certainly has stymied growth in the department when it comes to black um, New Yorkers joining the department. So there's still a lot of work to do. But at the end of the day, we appreciate that they are at least making a, a concerted effort to increase diversity, um, and not just in the patrol officer section, you know, more of the inspectors or deputy inspectors um, or high-ranking officials in the department are starting to look like our communities a little bit more. But there's still a long way to go. Um, when it comes to ensuring that policies that have disenfranchised uh, black and brown communities for so, for so long are addressed as well. So say a little bit about sort of your general sort of philosophy about the role of police in society, because you get a lot of people, you know, debating the practice of broken windows policing. I think I saw a city council speaker, Corey Johnson, quoted in a New York Post interview the other day saying broken windows policing hasn't worked because of the impact it's had on communities of color. Um, while you have others arguing that broken windows policing is what, you know, many communities of color really want because they want, uh, you know, some of the sort of lower level, as Bill Bratton would say, you know, uh, crime and disorder uh, taken care of and addressed before it grows. 
how do you see that? I mean, I've seen you give some very pointed comments at uh, oversight hearings at the council, at press conferences, on social media. Um, where where do you sort of see that line falling? Listen, we we have to acknowledge we are living in a society that has two different justice systems, right? Um, we live in a society where in a Southeast Queens black middle class neighborhood, you had um, St. Albans and Hollis and Laurelton and Rosedale, really black prestigious neighborhoods who led the city in marijuana enforcement. And when you look at the rationale that Bratton presents, for instance, and others who believe in broken windows, you know, there's no true correlation to crime in these neighborhoods because these neighborhoods have very little crime. I'm not saying we don't have issues that arise and we don't want those issues addressed. But at the end of the, the day, um, arresting somebody's grandchild for low-level marijuana offenses, locking them out of college opportunity, locking them out of a job opportunity, which then locks them out of housing opportunities, does nothing to resolve crime in our communities. So. The true goal has to be to ensure that the resources are being put into communities like the Rockaways, for instance, where we celebrated in one of my most dangerous housing complexes, believe it or not, where we could have close to, um, you know, two dozen shootings in the summer. A few months ago, we celebrated over 500 to 600 days of no shootings and no murders in that catchment area. And that's partly because we've invested in resources like Cure Violence, in the crisis management system. Those are true um, solutions to the problems that communities who historically have been disinvested in, um, those are true solutions to addressing the crime issue. Um, Broken windows, (laughs) it, it only perpetuates a situation and perpetuates crime, right? Because you get locked up in Rikers over a low level offense, then you come home and you're stuck, you know, you once again can't grab a job, can't find housing, you're going right back in there. So we have to really get to the core issues and address those issues, and that's the true way to address broken windows. Um, But this notion that there's this disorder going on in the street, you know, we're not seeing that in our communities. You know, we're seeing much more harmony between the police department and our communities, and we also are seeing less crime. I mean, let's remember, to the NYPD's credit, (laughs) we have seen historic drops in crime across the city, including shootings and murders. So for neighborhoods like mine, where once again, we could have seen, you know, in the 90s, 30 or 40 or 50 shootings, you know, we've seen record levels of single digits. um, And it comes in spurts and it goes now. So people are feeling safer in our communities. What do you think of Mayor de Blasio's handling of the question of Officer Daniel Pantaleo's continuing to serve the city and the other officers who were involved in uh, Eric Garner's death? Do you think he's handled it appropriately? No, I think his answer has been unsatisfactory, you know, and I think, you know, five years we're talking about (laughs) not even having an officer discipline. You know, Pantaleo has got gotten a raise um, (laughs) since Eric Garner's death. To make matters worse, you look at this situation, right? Um, You know, I attended the trial twice, um, and I got to hear 
from officers how they falsify documents, how one officer charged Eric Garner with a felony, which is equivalent of Eric Garner having 40,000 cigarettes on him. Then the officer who claims that he saw Eric Garner selling a cigarette was over 300 feet away from him at the time he uh, said he saw Eric Garner selling the cigarette. So (laughs) this gets back to what my core belief is. The police cannot police themselves. (laughs) You know, oversight is a function the council has and a function that we're going to continue to use because that's the role that we're supposed to play. But getting back to the mayor, you know, we can point to situations. For instance, for instance Commissioner Bratton fired uh, Detective Michael Melissi M- M- for his role in the NYPD bribery scandal in Brooklyn and forced others to retire while that incident was under federal investigation. So, so what, should the, what should the mayor have done? What, 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 what should the mayor have done as— The mayor could have asserted true leadership here and told his commissioner, who he appointed— that Pantaleo needs to be let go. You know, this is someone who used a banned chokehold. And do that when? As soon as the Staten Island grand jury doesn't indict? Or when When do you think he should have done that? Listen, I, I, I think it was acknowledged in 2015. IAB, the Internal Affairs Bureau, said that um, uh, fo- uh, charges were warranted against Pantaleo. So we're talking five years later. So from that time, you're telling me when IAB recommended charges, and and this was under Bratton, there was no action taken. It's unacceptable, you know. And this wouldn't be tolerated in any other community. And this is why my colleagues and I in the Black and Latino Asian Caucus and the Progressive Caucus yesterday, you know, rallied down at police headquarters to also send a clear message to. Um, the commissioner that you have an obligation to. It's not just the mayor. You you know, you can't abdicate re- responsibility. You you both have a responsibility to New Yorkers. And if we're talking about truly building trust with local communities, we can have all of the conversations around community policing and the NCO program, but without accountability <laughs> and transparency, we're not going to achieve the latter. So we have just about uh, uh, 90 seconds or so left, Councilmember. I want to shift gears quickly to Queen's politics and the question of this DA race, which remains unresolved. Obviously, we don't know which way it's going to go, but either way, do you see it having an effect or what effect do you see it having on Queen's politics, on the Queen's democratic apparatus, on your own future? What do you think the impact's going to be? And we should say that you were a Melinda Katz supporter in the, in the Democratic primary. Yeah, so, uh, listen, I think, you know, I mean, I, I can't measure the future, you know. I mean, I will have, you know, if uh, as a, pers- a, a prospective borough president candidate, you know, I will run, a, you know, my own campaign. So I, I can't speak um, for, you know, what that will look like in the future. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that the conversations in this race have been um, really help- really healthy um, and really shifting um, the goals we've had for decades in really ensuring that uh, the district attorney office looks much different in Queens. You know, we talk about policies that have um, certainly had a larger impact on black and brown communities um, in Queens, such as Southeast Queens, when we talk about marijuana enforcement, for instance, that's something the, the former DA was still prosecuting. <laughs> um, 
I, I think that this is certainly um, is going to redefine the way uh, that that office certainly looks. Uh, I think Queens is growing. And so just getting back so I could answer your question, Queens is growing. You know, uh, you know this is a borough of 2.2 million people. Uh, you know, we have rezoning actions happening all over Queens as well. Um, so we're going to there's, there's newer constituency coming in. I look forward to working with everyone and ensuring that every voice in this borough certainly feels like uh, they count. Um, the issues, and I think that's the things we have to focus on, right? Housing. You know, I, I know you were talking about Hurricane Sandy a second ago. The environment, public safety. These are all things that are important to Queens residents, and I think that's the things that they want to hear from um, future leaders that will come uh, or get elected in the future. So those are the things that we're going to continue to talk about as we move forward. And more than just talk about, I mean, you know, we could talk about infrastructure. We brought home $2.2 billion um, for our district and infrastructure money. We talk about the housing crisis. Uh, you know, close to 10,000 units of affordable housing in the Rockaways. So we're going to we're going to uh, so. definitely have you back on to discuss your Queensboro presidency campaign when the time comes around. I have not officially <laughs> announced anything, but to say we, this, this well, just to get to your, your question on whether this race is a bellwether for a future borough presidency race, you know, I mean, I can't answer that question. You know, I think Melinda ran uh, a great campaign. I think Tiffany ran a great ca- uh, campaign. I even think uh, Judge Lasak ran a, a decent campaign as well. So from what I've heard, Melinda's up by 50 votes now, and we'll see how this all plays out over the course of uh, the next few weeks. And and if she wins, we'll, we'll come right back to you for an announcement on, uh, <laughs> on a potential special election. I have election. or declared anything. <laughs> all right. But, well, Council, Queens. Council, <laughs> we all love <laughs> enjoy. Councilmember Donovan Richards, thanks for joining us here. Thank you all right, take care. Thank you. Bye. Well, listeners, we're coming to the end of another exciting episode of Max and Murphy. Thank you so much for joining us. Please stay tuned to WBAI because we have the WBAI evening news coming up next. We know that uh, Robert Mueller's testimony will dominate news over the next day or so, but please check GothamGazette.com, CityLimits.org for other important stories. Thanks so much for joining Ben, Max, and I. We're here every Wednesday at 5. Thank you, Reggie, for running the board. Have a great week in the greatest city in the world.